Gentlemen, great to see you. Absolutely. Great to be here. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for thanks for dropping by, Evan. It's uh, fantastic to uh, host you hosting us. <laughs> Indeed. I know. I don't know exactly. It's You guys are so good at this that, you know, it's, it's an interviewer, interviewee collaboration of sorts. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm really glad that we got to be here today. I was so thrilled when I found out about what you both do mm. um, and doing it at a national level uh, and really pushing forth um, what Meyer side chats is really intended to create itself. Uh, and when I found out about braver angels, I was just thrilled, um, that this is going on and, um, for, you know, just to kind of kick things off, tell me a little bit about what braver angels is and what inspired you to be part of this. Randy, uh, you want to go first or should I, should I, uh, um, I'm happy to lead off. Lead off. <laughs> Coin to us. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, I mean, Braver Angels is an organization, I would say the largest organization in the space uh, that is trying to help Americans come together and transcend the division that we've been really experiencing over the last several years. And that's been getting worse uh, and help uh, Americans to understand one another rather than just trying to make their point, win the argument. Uh, and if we can actually understand one another, then we can help to really build a house united and, uh, come and make progress, uh, for this country in the way that I think a lot of people are really hungry for, uh, but that they have been so frustrated seeing their leaders, uh, their, the people in their lives, their friends and family, their, their neighbors and colleagues, uh, just be unable to have productive discussions about the issues that are really important for them. So in uh, late 2016, we brought together uh, our first workshop. It was roughly equal numbers of Clinton and Trump supporters right after the election. And we did a pilot workshop that gave real structure to the conversation. And it was led by our uh, one of our co-founders, Dr. Bill Doherty, who has a lot of expertise in helping uh, relationships that are in crisis really to move past that and, and, and use better communication skills to understand one another. And he's a professor of uh, psychology at the University of Minnesota and, and really one of America's foremost uh, family counselors, marriage therapists, essentially. Right. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And so from there, uh, that was such a successful experience, such a successful experiment. Uh, and so we built an organization based on that. And, and so that Red Blue Workshop blossomed into many programs. Uh, we have skills training workshops. We have debates. Uh, we have uh, a pro new programs like Braver Politics and Braver Partners. And, and there's just so much work blossoming around that, as well as a local network uh, around the country of, of local alliances uh, that come together to do the work together and, and sustain relationships so they can really understand one another and help this country move forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, one way to understand the work that we do is to, to sort of realize the fact that we're bringing people together in community across the country in local context, but also in a national sort of fashion. So, you know, because of the magic of Zoom and web-based technology, we're able to, of course, bring people together in real time across geography and so forth. And uh, not just in sort of live Zoom-based programs and conversations, but, you know, in people's sort of relationship with the Braver Angels podcast, you know, subscribing to the newsletter, uh, being a part of the sort of media content that we generate, consuming that, sharing that, this sort of narrative approach to saying that red and blue, left and right, ultimately complete one another in an American experiment that's based on the idea that is e pluribus unum, that out of many we are one, right? As aspirational and even naive sounding a notion as that might be to people in the present moment, we do come from the premise which says that ultimately we need each other in an inclusive fashion to make democracy work, that we can't make democracy work excluding one another, right? Not just in terms of voting rights, but even in terms of our ability, again, to connect with and relate to each other. Our work is about bringing people into a community that sort of affirms that at least as, as an aspiration and something that we get to by modeling internally, right? But the idea is not just to sort of model that in one-off conversations, but in the programs that Randy, Randy mentioned and our Red Blue workshops and our debate programs, 
uh, in our skills training workshops where people learn uh, effective means of communicating and empathizing across the divide and through very many other uh, formats. People are developing skills and attitudes and cultivating new norms for political and social discourse and behavior that they then take with them back out across the social and institutional landscape, right? Uh, attitudes, perspectives, and habits that they take with them back to their college campus, back to their business or place of work, back to their church, back to their local community, back to their local government, uh, even back to their kitchen table, right? All while being plugged in to a larger sort of national community and, and growing movement, um, which seeks to sort of, you know, articulate this idea that, again, you know, the success of democracy is based on our ability to trust one another in a spirit of goodwill, that we can only get to that point by modeling that, by being willing to go first in empathizing with each other across the divide. So in that way, um, although it's, it is activity that is spurred forth by a lot of spontaneity and grassroots volunteerism, community momentum, it's also part of a larger sort of structure of social impact, which reaches out across institutions, across geography, across demography, and across the political spectrum, changing and reorienting the way we interact with each other. Uh, so what is the, the or that you're seeing the biggest trust issue between people and their government and each other? What's, what's, it, maybe it's not one thing, but... Yeah, I, I don't think it's one thing. I mean, it's certainly, you know, going to be one thing more than the other. At, what are you at, seeing at the most moment, of? Right? What's 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 coming to the top? Well, I mean, right now, you know, it, it's hard not to put, you know, Roe versus, not not to put the issue of abortion, you know, sort of right up at the top of that list. That's just so fresh right now. We're here speaking just, a, what, just a few days after Roe v. Wade was overturned and, you know, millions of Americans who thought they had a certain constitutional right that's, you know, deep and intimately sort of, you know, held now feel that sort of pulled from from un, uh, from under them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you've got millions of Americans who for years and years been advocated advocating for, you know, a change in our society that's just a deeply entrenched moral commitment, you know, moral and, of course, even, you know, religious for, for many millions of Americans. And, you know, they, they are overjoyed, but it just reinforces, you know, this longstanding reality that we're operating largely separate uh, universes, you know, morally and epistemologically and so on and so forth. And so what I would say is that it's not a single issue, but that each individual issue finds itself kind of wrapped up in packaging where... It's really the conflict of the identities we have that are somewhat composed of the individual issues uh, that find themselves sort of being the fundamental forces in conflict in American society. So, you know, if I'm a conservative, you're a liberal, you know, it may be that, you know, I, you know, hypothetically believe in the Second Amendment and am pro-life and, you know, you believe in universal, uh, universal health care uh, and, 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 and climate change. Um, but it's not just that we disagree about the issues, but it's the fact that if you buy into those things from my vantage point, if I'm polarized, you're somebody who's buying in to a large, you know, federal and maybe global sort of conspiracy to take away my rights and freedoms. And if I believe the things that I just said, you know, I'm somebody who's a part of a larger sort of white supremacist, you know, sort of, sort of push in, right. in society, Right. Uh, to disenfranchise people of color, uh, people of different sexual orientations. Yeah, we you know? generalize the, we, we take one piece of information and then we draw an entire picture yeah, of the person absolutely. based on that one piece of information. Right. And mm -hmm. and it's actually really unfair. Yeah. Um, it's incorrect mm. yeah, as the, well. <laughs> there, there's, there's a really interesting dynamic that, you know, this process has been uh, under, you know, underway for decades, really. And I, I, I one of the, kind of watersheds of what has happened to kind of give each of us our unique feed of media, right? And and with the cable television uh, revolution, right, where each person could go to a channel that was uniquely suited to them, right? You no longer had a shared national narrative. Now with the progression of technology that gives us literally a personal feed mm -hmm. uh, of our own information, we are each steeped in exactly what we think uh, is our is the proper worldview 
right? And we, we constantly are getting information that is reinforcing that worldview. So uh, there's these, this ironic counterpoint that, you know, we are getting more and more customization mm-hmm. of, of the universe, but, but our, caric- uh, our caricatures of one another are more and more flattened. Right. So you can only be on one of two teams at this point. Uh, Otherwise, you risk being accused of disloyalty or naivete by the folks who you perhaps feel most uh, kindred spirit with. Sure. Right. So you can't even ask questions. Exactly. About if you even pose that there may be a difference between what's uh, the news is saying and what you're thinking. You are you are automatically construed as the opposite of whatever party is being presented. Right. And you could be damaging people by uh, by bringing an idea to light uh, and and wanting to discuss that idea in more detail. Right. And so uh, it seems like a lot of people um, and this is this is a problem that uh, I think a lot of folks ascribe to the left these days. But there are analogs on the right. Right. So there is a lot of uh, reinforcement of that loyalty that people feel just such pressure to hew to. And it is, and it takes a lot of courage to be able to stand up to that. I I was, I was watching uh, the Gen 6 committee hearings uh, last night and and seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the the testimony that was being given. And and in my mind, it, it took such courage for many of the people who were, you know, quite loyal, uh, deputies of the Trump administration. And they decided, no, this is this is what I feel is right. I, I have to come forward. And, you know, careers have been ended because of it. Right. But they, you know, some some of the similar kind of things have happened on the left where people are like, eh, I'm not comfortable with the uh, the pressure on free speech that's being brought to bear, especially in college campuses, for example. Right. And when people speak out, those careers have been cut short. And I think that um, as an organization in general. We think that the free exchange of ideas is so important to this country. One of the reasons why uh, when we uh, changed our name, uh, we were originally Better Angels uh, based on the the Lincoln quote, uh, summoning the better angel of our nature. But when we changed our name, the reason we chose Braver Angels is because it takes a lot of courage to engage in these conversations when often there's so much at risk, right? People are risking their relationships. They're risking perhaps their livelihoods. Um, And if people are too scared based on those risks, then we stop having a, 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 a national conversation. And that is one of the scariest things of all yeah. from our perspective, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. We find ourselves pushing each other out of all of our sort of shared spaces. I mean, I do, I do agree with Randy. I mean, I, I, I think that cancel culture is you know, essentially something that exists sort of, you know, broadly across the body politic. I think you see it on the left and on the right. If there's an asymmetry, I think it probably comes in the fact that I think sort of left, left-leaning cultural forces are more predominating in, in mainstream sort of cultural institutions. And so you're going to find it more in the vehicles that kind of broadcast out across the national landscape, you know, the entertainment industry, obviously, you know, academia and so forth. The culture of the federal government, uh, it's, you know, tends to be left-leaning on the level of bureaucrats and so on and so forth. But, you know, if you're talking about, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're talking about, you know, the culture of small towns, if you're talking about, you know, Republican uh, state parties and central committees censoring folks like Mitt Romney or, you know, kicking out, you know, people from longstanding veterans of the GOP for not hewing the party party line and sort of, you know, cast kissing the ring of, of uh, Donald Trump and so forth. I mean, you know, you, you do see that this is something, you know, that exists, I think, pretty widely in American culture. And what it ensures, you know, as, you know, as, as you know, progressives push conservatives sort of out of mainstream institutions, as conservatives sort of build up their own sort of parallel infrastructures and so forth, it just reinforces the echo chambers sort of phenomenon and divides our epistemological universe to where, you know, our ability to sort of, you know, show up to to reality in the same way becomes as starkly as starkly divided as the as the way Randy and I are dressed right now. You know, it's like people <laughs> people just you know showing up to the same party thinking it's a totally different kind of a uh, kind of show. You know, yeah, yeah none of us are dressed the same actually. <laughs> right? Yeah, we coordinated. Yeah. <laughs> it's it it part of the theme. Yeah, yeah you I, you know I, I noticed and just to kind of jump back to your point a little bit and then follow up on yours like the you have to go so far out of your way 
to get out of the algorithm. And you have to want to do that, Mm. to not to get out of your echo chamber Mm. and to hear other perspectives because likely your friends think similar than you. Mm. Right. Um, And the one that doesn't, I've seen this, the few that don't end up sort of not hanging out as much anymore. Um, In the family situation, the ones that think differently end up being kind of on the on the edge you know yeah. they get if, if you're the one person that thinks differently in a crowd of five <laughs> then you're the one person who thinks differently in a crowd of five it's like mm-hmm. yeah. you know what's going to happen when that they people talk and then so you have to work so hard and it's and um and what i always say is you have to watch more of the stuff you disagree with than the stuff you agree with mm. if you want good perspective because it's easy to find things you agree with that's really super easy well and not only is it harder to you know see the same thing is of course the algorithm works in a momentum kind of building sort of way right once we're all inclined to look at the things that affirm our biases and so forth and so the technology sort of responds to that and continues to feed that to us i think that when people you know you, you put somebody who's used to watching msnbc or you know or or you know, Pod Save America all day, and you sit them in front of Blaze. It doesn't take but a second to sort of like you know for for their blood to just right. start boiling. Right. Same thing, same thing going the other way. So you know, I mean, you're right. You really do have to go out of your way and sort of learn how to get comfortable with views that you're uncomfortable with. Now, you know, uh, I encourage people to do that, but it's it's difficult. The thing that Braver Angels does is we don't exactly eliminate discomfort because you can't. On some level, we really are trying to get people to become comfortable with discomfort. And what that does allow for in the right context is an ability to see the humanity in the person uh, coming from the other side in a way that allows you to learn, expand your own perspective, and more effectively represent your own, right? And so you can progress to the point of being more and more comfortable with perspectives you are uncomfortable with. Um, but the, And seeking those relationships in your life, even. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seeking those relationships in, in your life or being comfortable or, or more comfortable sort of, you know, tolerating the ones that are already there without the desire to sort of cut <laughs> off relationships. Those levels. We, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, yeah. we damage ourselves when we do that. Right. When we do that, right? Um, many people have cut people out of their lives who then miss those people, right? But, you know, you... Because we've collapsed your political affiliation into something that we presume to be equal to your moral character, which I would argue it, it, it is not. These are not the same things. But because we've drawn this equivalency, we find ourselves forced uh, to make these hard decisions <clears throat> rather than reasoning with each other in a way that can allow us to expand sort of, you know, our understanding of our understanding of reality. And so, you know, the... If you just force people to kind of like watch news from the other side of the aisle, I think it's, it's a good thing. But the amazing thing about Braver Angels is a good thing for people to have that habit. But the amazing, amazing thing about Braver Angels is that, you know, if you're somebody coming from the left, we're not Sean Hannity like shouting at you that, you know, you're you're a libtard or, or what have you, you know, uh, for having the point of view that you have. And if you're somebody coming from the right, you know, we're not, you know, I don't know, Cenk Uger saying that you're a fascist or, or what have you, you know, for thinking the way that, that you think. Yeah. Isn't we there are... an argument that says like once you compare someone to Hitler, the argument ends because, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, because and yet it's, it's not, still, you can't do that. And yet it's not that uncommon a thing. It feels. It's very like, common. A lot of right. people just jump to the Nazi. I've heard both. Nazi Obama's Nazi, Hitler you know. and Trump was Hitler. Oh, yeah. 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 That's what everybody's Hitler. And both was, people. How can they both be Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so yeah. uh, to, to John's point, um, you know, about our emphasis on relationships. You know, I read a book by uh, Chris Bale, Breaking the the Social Media Prism, and he actually exploded some uh, misconceptions that we have about our media bubbles, right? And, you know, most people think, oh, we're only seeing things that we agree with, which I kind of alluded to before, but isn't exactly right. It's, uh, we are also seeing things that we disagree with, but they're framed in a way that, is not really helpful for us to understand them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when and, and and so he 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 talked about when people on social media encounter a, a particularly virulent strain of the other side, a, right. a, a strident point of view that it doesn't it doesn't help things. It actually hurts things. Right. So so encountering uh, other viewpoints has to be in a context of relationship, a context of trust. Right. And when you when you really get to know someone, you start to understand their journey 
towards how they came to believe what they believe. And, you know, we continually emphasize the, the power and the value of story, of narrative, right? Because human beings are such a narrative-driven species, right? That's how we understand our entire world. In fact, be, before we're, we even develop language, uh, toddlers uh, at the end of their day are kind of processing their, their, their day in a narrative form and, and putting themselves into that narrative, right? So, uh, so when we're able to hear someone's story, it really helps us identify with them and it helps us to fully understand or more fully understand at least um, their process and to make them a lot less alien. Can, can I pick out one of Randy's points just a second ago, just because I think it's worth worth underlining that Randy just um, sort of mentioned the fact that in the partisan media landscape, not only are you, you know, it's, it's not that you never find yourself exposed to the other point of view. Obviously, you have to be exposed to it in some form or fashion, because if not, there's nothing to talk shit about. Right. But it is presented to you in a way that... And that's know, an imperative, <laughs> right, uh, that's apparently. A, that's <laughs> imperative. No, actually, but it kind of is, yeah. though. I mean, we do have a psychological sort of, you know, Absolutely. an impulse towards conflict, right? And an impulse towards, you know, some of this messiness. But the thing I was just going to pull out is that, you know, you oftentimes are getting hit with, you know, straw man versions of the other side or the most extreme version of the other side as if that's what's representative of, the, of you know, the people and, and, you know, the interests that... You know, you find yourself in opposition to, but you know all the research shows. I mean, you know, uh, more in common data, data from the American Enterprise Institute, and I imagine any number of other sources that your sort of archetypal conservative or progressive, like the progressive who you know who who believes in. I mean, you just sort of go down the list. You know, like higher marginal taxes. You, you know, single payer health care, whether it's you know pro-choice, or gay marriage, is that or the other. The, the person who checks all those boxes on the left and the person who's straight down the line, you know, low taxes, market health care, you know, pro-life and pro-gun, this, that, or the other, represents like, you know, somewhere around like, you know, 8 to 15 percent of the people who would actually, you know, identify or affiliate as Republicans or Democrats generally or vote that way, um, which means that everybody else is in the middle. By the way, there's nothing wrong, of course, with, you know, Checking all those boxes, if that's your point of view, I'm not saying that's the problem. But what is true is that the more partisan people tend to be, the more fully they align, the more oftentimes the more aggressive and kind of, you know, sort of, you know, um, vitriolic they might tend to be in the way they sort of advocate for their position, the more zero sum their kind of social engagement with people on the other side of the aisle is. And my only point here is just that we get the sense that everybody's an asshole on the other side, Right. Because it's the business model of the media and the prevailing political establishment to make you think that. Um, but that's not true. You know, I don't think it's true of regular folks. I don't even think it's necessarily true of, of our, most of our elected officials and so forth. But all of the incentives are there to make you demonize people in that way. It's squeaky wheel syndrome at its best. And it's clickbait and it's, and it's engagement um, based on conflict. People engage with con things Absolutely. that um, are contentious. Yeah. And, and to and to bring this into uh, a context of how our programs actually address this issue, so I have moderated a bunch of red blue workshops, right? And I don't think I can recall one where someone didn't say at the end, "We're a lot closer to one another than I realized." And what they also say is that my side is less monolithic than I thought. Mm. You know, we have a lot more diversity of opinion. Right. And so that flattening gets completely destroyed uh, and people's understanding of the variety of viewpoint uh, on either side of the issue is 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 brought into full, vibrant color uh, by these by these workshops. Sometimes, you know, we we get a criticism. Well, isn't your red blue framing inherently itself divisive? And, you know, we have to explain, well, when you're trying to address an issue, you have to name that issue. Right. You have to actually look it in the face and say, well, the the issue here is that people have these skewed, very stereotypical, very flat understandings of people who they often don't know at all. Right. And so you bring those people specifically together. That's why we have people identify, at least in the red blue workshops and, and, and our discussion workshops. Right. And not not all of our programs uh, actually do this, but um, but you bring those folks together to go through exercises like the stereotypes exercise where they say, this is the stereotype that you have of us. 
And this is why it's unfair. But also, this is how we can be self-reflective and we can we can actually own maybe a little of a kernel of truth of that stereotype and understand why you see us this way. Right. So it, it's just so powerful because it uh, it lends that color and texture to to one another. But it also is a an incredible act of good faith between the two sides in terms of being vulnerable. And that mm. is some of the biggest power, I think, of, of those programs. Uh, it's amazing that you've done you know, so much work around this uh, and have seen the reactions of people, what happens and what is possible when, when we realize that it's, it's, it's not our values and aspirations that are in question. Because I believe, and from what I've seen, it's, it is basically the same. Everyone wants their kids to go to a good school and have good education for the country, and no yeah. one wants to have mental illness and homelessness, right? Like, we all want to take care of people. And, um, and all the, especially all the people in the middle who are, who are getting caught into the clickbait mm -hmm. and getting, and that's, that squeaky wheel is what's driving the conversation. And mm -hmm. it happens at a local level on local issues too. Yeah. Right. Just, just on basic stuff, like even, um, anything that we deal with, you know, in Santa Monica, for example, there's, there's people, and a lot of it's just because people have time to do it <laughs> as well. There's some, it's, it's difficult to be someone in your twenties, thirties, forties, uh, and, and have the time to be involved at a local level True. Uh, and take that and do that community service and volunteer effort. You know, you're trying to build a, a career, a family, it's hard. Um, and a lot of that starts to balance, to, to create an imbalance in the concept of democracy period. You say, well, yeah. if these are all the voices that we're listening to, um, and all of, and all of them are the activists say, then, then, then where are the voices of the, the people in that really are yeah. thinking somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah, you know, you make a, you make a good point. Um, part of the issue we uh, struggle with at Brave Angels is the fact that, you know, while while our programs touch a sort of a more diverse range of people, uh, you know, I, the folks who are able to sort of volunteer and work with us on a regular basis, and you know, very grateful for 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 them, right? Uh, so don't don't get me wrong, but they do tend to be more sort of middle to upper class, more educated and closer to their retirement years and so forth. You know, um, now there are, you know, a couple of organizations, namely one in particular who we work with on campuses called Bridge USA, which have done a phenomenal job sort of, you know, mobilizing Gen Z in this in this kind of work. Right. Um, but, you know, that's an issue we face within Brave Angels. But broadly speaking, across the body politic, your point is your point is well taken Two. I mean, when I was running, um, when I, <laughs> this is actually an interesting thing. You, you've, you've made me think about some for the first time. Um, when I was running for office, so I ran as a Republican uh, for Congress way back in 2014, and I was the vice chairman of the LEGOP for you know well, a couple of years or so. And and uh, you know, I, I, back then I used to really wish there was there was an organization like Braver Angels because. When I was speaking to, you know, folks in neighborhoods, uh, in churches, uh, you know, communities, sort of, you know, sorts of context, um, generally speaking, you know, people are very reasonable, whether they're left or right, and were willing to sort of engage and listen. And, you know, they tended to, you know, have their leanings, but also tended to be more practical, more pragmatic a lot of times than they were ideological, or at least that's the way they wanted to be, Right. But in terms of people who are like organized to sort of make social change, those environments tended to be much more sort of polarized, radicalized. And of course, you know, in the Republican Party, uh, you've got, you know, a lot of folks who are generally sort of older uh, who might have more time for this sort of volunteer work, who are also very polarized and, and great people so much of the time. Right. But, you know, just sort of in a state of mind to where it's kind of difficult to really see what the other side is saying. And I think of the Democratic Party, you have something similar that happens on the other end of the demographic spectrum because you've got people who may have a little bit of bandwidth owing to the fact that, you know, you're college students and, you know, it's not to say you're not having to, you know, work hard at school and so forth, but maybe you've got enough of the pressure taken off of you to where you don't have to, you don't have as much pressure to pay the bills as you would if you, you know, were a working class person with a family of three or four or five. And there's also kind of a social economy that evolves around activism where you kind of like, scale that a bit by being the pursuit person who's sort of like most unrelenting or most unyielding, you know, in your advocacy for, you know, racial justice or gender justice or whatever the case, whatever the case may be. So we have these social economies that kind of, you know, kind of grow up. And to be simplistic, I think it's little, you know, a little bit more for older people on the right, a little bit more for younger people on the left. 
but very little incentive uh, for anybody to sort of meet in the middle or listen to each other across that divide. One, because of the nature of the polarizing, just sort of, you know, polarization industry, if you will. But, you know, two, because um, they are not necessarily as grounded in the day-to-day sorts of concerns of just regular sort of like, you know, working working folks who got to think much more about making, you know, about things just working in their, you know, day-to-day lives rather than winning culture wars, right? And so I think that things kind of break out uh, in that way, in that way as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you made a good point there around the impetus uh, uh, to, to, to solve this problem that isn't necessarily there. Um, and, you know, I guess what's really interesting to me is that when you think about all that we know, and I think most people would agree that um, the news and media portray these extremes the clickbait problem is real. The contentious engagement problem is real. They know that advertisers fund the media agencies as well. So there's some relationship Mm -hmm. there, right? Like they, people know this, right? But when they get their information, Oh, I'll throw one more bots, AI, (laughs) the level of information and curation that has to be done to get a well-balanced perspective on, on any issue. And right. still, you'll never get to a hundred percent, right? Right. But to me, it seems it seems wild that people don't have, in general, have the humility to say, you know what, I understand that because they do understand that. Right. But when it comes to having the staunch belief that they have about what the thing they just read, yeah. the article they read, and get enraged and then name call, ad hominem attacks at people. And go up and yell at people, and then and and um, destroy relationships of friends and family because of this thing they saw in the news that they right. thought was all right. objective truth, which is almost impossible to right. to get to the bottom of, and mm-hmm. no one knows in the is is in the room where it happens. <laughs> we can't even get to the bottom of like the politics of the development at Fourth and Arizona at yeah, Santa Monica. Right. Oh, like yeah, there's yeah. so much reality TV around, like <laughs> even at the most local level stuff. Uh, and people true. think they understand what's going on in the, in, in the room of, you know, these federal politicians, yeah, yeah. yeah. international yeah. leaders in rooms. And we constantly have to, <laughs> like, to reinforce to people in our workshops that you know, we are swimming in a different sea of facts, every single person, right? So that it is a very common lament from folks on both the left and the right that the other side doesn't care about facts. They just want, they just are focusing on their emotions. Right. Uh, and it's it's basically the exact same <laughs> argument. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and we have to reinforce that, well, first of all, emotions are a constant presence in human communication. That is undeniable. You can't separate that out. Right. You have to actually, uh, you know, I, I listened to your your pod with uh, the the city manager, uh, you know, that you did recently. And, and you were talking about like people lose sight of the fact that we're all human beings. Right. And we're, we're not just fact machines that are uh, that are re- regurgitating what we hear online. We, we have, you know, all of these uh, these experiences that we have to bring to bear. Right. But but people say, yes, I, I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Um, that I have seen things that someone else has, hasn't and vice versa, but they always come back to there because, because in the moment, as you said, right, we hear something and, and you are like, how could someone else possibly hear this? Right. And, and of course we're hearing it right now with the January 6th hearings, right. From, from a lot of blues who are like this, this has to change everything, right? How could, how could someone watch this and not be totally convinced right that the story is a hundred percent clear and, uh, and zero uncertainty exactly and, yeah. and and you know part of that is a is a function of the fact that it is uh that there are not trump supporters on the the committee I happen to believe you know I, I lean blue and I happen to believe that the, that the committee is making an airtight case that that the other side can't really re, uh, rebut but yeah. but the fact is we do have to recognize that there is some information that they're not motivated to include mm-hmm. right and we have to we always have to be thinking about that yeah what's the agenda what's the motivation of anyone doing this yeah. period mm-hmm. right you have right. to you have to dissect that and january 6 is a tricky one because yeah there is a lot of this kind of compelling things that are happening and um there's there, 
it, it, and a lot of people are watching that. It's also a very hot topic right now. Yeah. Um, and, but um, yes, it does seem like there's no way to see a possibility of someone who thinks differently. And there are still, even with this, millions and millions of our friends and neighbors of this country who see things a little bit differently. They're looking at it from a different, they get different news, they read, or they're reading different stories, testimonials, whatever, and those are not presented here, and it makes it, it's not to say whether it's right or wrong, but you have to say what, if you want to solve the problem, and let's say it's 100% truth in this case, that this happened January 6th was um, as presented in the hearings. If you want to know why people feel the way they do and what you have to ask them and dive deep into that conversation yeah, and say, right. what are you, let's, let's lay out the information that we're reading here and tell me why, because if I want to in the future, make things a certain way in this country, I have to understand what the other side, what, what is the argument that I'll have to get over right. even if I want to win a certain uh, policy or whatever. And, and you have to yeah. make sure that you don't have preconditions going into that conversation right so so around this specific issue there's so many blues who say well if if someone is not willing to simply accept the fact that this was an insurrection then i mean how could i possibly talk to them right right and, and if you have if you're gonna put you have to not believe in science <laughs> exactly, yeah so, so yeah if you're yeah. gonna put a precondition on your willingness to even talk to somebody then odds are the conversation is never going to start and we're not actually going to make the progress that you're that you're hoping that you can you know you can convince this person uh, to change their entire worldview, but you're unwilling to to even come to the table right. unless they are already partly there. Right. So you're right, so, and they're evil. Well, right. <laughs> and, and and yeah, right. And and by the way, that's also something that you hear on you know here on each side. Actually, what I used to hear on each side was you know they think we think that they're wrong, but they think that we're evil. Although I'm, af I'm afraid that these days it might be tipping a little more towards, no, actually, you know what, maybe they are evil. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but no, you know, but to your, to your point, um, Evan, uh, you know, uh, Randy, I, I think that possibly the most controversial thing we've ever done at uh, Braver Angels uh, was be willing to uh, hold actual debates and discussions on the subject of, you know, voter fraud, voter su suppression, but including the point of view that the 2020 election really was stolen by fraud. Because, you know, we've got uh, we've got members uh, at Braver Angels uh, who who believe that we've got that we, we might have a member of staff or two. I'm not I'm not sure. But, um, you know, that that's a view that's present within our community. And from our vantage point, that's a good thing. You know, not because I agree with that view necessarily, but because, the, as Randy said, you know, you, you got to be able to name the divisions and the polarities that exist in America if we're going to be able to set the stage for an honest conversation that can allow us to, one, reason our way towards truth, but to do that from a vantage point of interpersonal trust. Like, I may not, like, you know, right off the bat agree with what you have to say, Evan, but if I think, like, yeah, but, you know, but Evan, he's a good guy, he means well, you know, I'm going to at least be willing to listen to you, right? And I'm going to be yeah. comfortable sharing my point of view with you. But that's the pre that's the precondition that needs to be set before you have that conversation. Well, precisely. And I think that folks who feel that the way to combat dangerous sort of, you know, misinformation is to make sure that nobody who holds any of these views has a platform. I, I think that it's sort of like it's sort of like, I don't know, sweeping all the dirt under the rug and then saying the room is clean. You know, um, it's more that you sort of hid the problem from your line of sight. But it's out there, you know, uh, you know, it's the, the dust is there in the air. You're breathing it in. And ultimately, you know, it's going to come back around in the next election. It's going to poison people's trust in the larger sort of democratic system unless you actually engage their arguments and their points of view. And if you have the truth, you know, then you might actually be able to reach people with it. Right. But, you know, the thing that people will tell you is, yeah, but if people don't listen to facts, what does it matter? And our response to that is basically that, you know, it's not necessarily the case that people are unavailable to facts. They're unavailable to facts when they do not trust the people who have the facts or who presume to have the facts. And they will not trust those people unless they feel that those people actually mean them well. And they will never feel that those people mean them well if those people relentlessly traffic in stereotypes towards them. And so, you know, uh, or, or otherwise demonizing them for just, you know, for, for the way they come at the issues. 
And so, you know, people may again sort of say, yeah, but they demonize us. And, you know, my response to that is just like, well, you know what? That's kind of like the eye for an eye thing that leaves yeah. the whole world blind. Yeah. At a certain point, somebody's got to be willing to go first and showing a little bit of grace here, you know, and try to empathize at least with how people feel, even if you don't feel their reasoning, you yeah. know, because, you know, you got to break that cycle. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. We're trying to break that cycle of mistrust and contempt. Yeah, yeah. There, there was there was a really powerful idea in the book from Steven Pinker from a few years ago. He actually wrote in 2011, I think, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which obviously is something that, you know, we, uh, Steven Pinker has, has worked with us uh, and, and we, you know, value his, his perspective. And I mean, this book reframed a lot of things for me, um, you know, about the arc of human history and, and our, the way that we have related to one another. Um, I think it's it's a really important thing. There's a lot of really important things in there to understand. One of them that he framed up was when societies are moving past really traumatic uh, experiences, collective experiences like mm. civil wars, like genocides, yeah. uh, like apartheid, right? The the key to actually moving past that sort of of trauma is for at least one side, as John said, to take the step first to recognize that there will be no perfect justice, right? If we demand perfect justice, well, that often comes at the expense of the other side. And we may feel that that's right, but the other side is not going to see it exactly the same way that we do. And there's going to be a cycle of recrimination. And that other side is going to, is going to demand to be compensated in a certain way. And you have basically a cycle that never ends. So uh, you really do have to accept the idea that um, that imperfect justice is a a worthy goal, and that understanding one another, establishing those relationships, can be the bridge that it takes to accept that you're not going to get perfect justice. You're not going to be made perfectly whole uh, by a solution, and that has to be okay because. There's no way for anyone to be perfectly whole in this, you know, absurdly complicated world uh, of the human condition in which we exist. Yeah. Striving towards utopia is great, but, you know, <laughs> one of the things, and you mentioned, you make a really important point that's, um, that's very, that's very manifest um, uh, locally and even more so federally, I believe, when you start extrapolating, extrapolating how far this can reach. Mm -hmm. But when you win something 50-50, yeah. well, no, you couldn't win, 49-51. <laughs> when mm -hmm. you win something 51-49, mm -hmm. that's not really a win. Mm. What you did was beat the game, right. but, the, but you lost 49%. Mm -hmm. And those people, in a lot of different uh, issues, are angry. And they will come back and be like, and think right. that that's a loss for them. And now that they have to go fight harder on the next one and they hold that deep. It's part of mm -hmm. their egoic existence, right. right? It's part of like, I can't believe they took that from me. Right. Mm -hmm. And when something like Roe happens, we're seeing it in real time yeah. right now that, that each side is being mobilized. You know, the uh, uh, conservatives are being mobilized to, oh, let's now we can go all the way right now. We can make sure that that abortion can never be. Right. Uh, uh, illegal in, in anywhere in this country, right? Uh, because they want to press their advantage and, and use it on other issues. Right. right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and of course the, uh, the liberals and, and progressives are, you know, this is going to be the issue of mobilization in the, uh, um, in the midterm elections. Right. And, and so it will be that kind of ping pong effect. Um, and, and one of our early on, one of our, uh, workshop participants, said something uh, to the effect of, um, you know, we have to accept that we're never going to vanquish the other side, right? So we might as well learn how to work together so we can advance this country. And that's something that, that once people kind of hear it, they're like, oh yeah, that is kind of true. Like, I, I'm not going to defeat them, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're not going to just go away, you know, if I, if I manage to mobilize enough people in my base, right? So so what does that mean practically? And, and, and so would I always try to emphasize, um, especially when it comes to the the most passionate supporters and activists uh, behind a cause or behind a, a political philosophy, is that, you know, I, I recognize, I share a lot of those passions, right? And, and I feel 
very strongly about what is right and what is wrong and, and, and the path that we should be taking as a country. But when it comes to the practicality of it, um, when it comes to, you know, a lot of progressives talk about uh, impact versus intent and that it's impact that matters, even if you in, if you don't intend something to be harmful, but but they don't seem to think about it in a, in a practical sense that the impact that they are having by demonizing the other side and by by making it impossible for even many of their own former allies to join their cause because they've been cast out uh, and they have been deemed irredeemable, right? Um, the impact of that is that they are shooting themselves in the foot and they are undercutting their own goals. And so as, you know, as an organization, we welcome people from all over the political, political spectrum. As John mentioned, you know, there does tend to be a, uh, a critical mass of, of folks who are constitutionally uh, kind of moderate and, and, and want to naturally kind of reach across the aisle, right? But, but one of the challenges is to communicate with the most passionate and the most strident that no, there's a, there's a more effective way that you can be advocating for what you believe in, and that is the Braver Angels way. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's something that's also deeply inspired by uh, Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence. And so part of what Martin Luther King Jr. taught was that we must pursue peace by means of peace, right? Uh, and that, you know, we must pursue social change in a way that allows us to ultimately put ourselves on a path towards reconciling with our enemies, right? Um, the idea being that we do not wish to defeat or humiliate them so much as win their trust and friendship. Now, the thing is, is that Dr. King was not somebody who at the same time retreated an inch from speaking the truth, from speaking it firmly, speaking it righteously, right? And so that's the balance that has to be struck. Because, you know, people oftentimes say, well, look, how, how can I, you know, commit to the work of depolarization without, like, moderating my position and whatnot or making myself less effective? But you make yourself more effective, you know? Uh, when you're able to lean into truth with passion in a way that also, also shows that you're taking the moral high ground, right? Um, because suddenly, even if somebody disagrees with you, they have a more difficult time aligning your character or thinking that your opposition to them is something personal as opposed to principled, right? right? So, you know, if, if you're coming from a place of principle um, and good intentions, like I can respect you and I, I, probably, have to, I probably have to listen to you. You know, whereas I can sort of write you off a little bit again, if you're just somebody who I can easily kind of like characterize uh, as a cartoon character or some kind of some kind of villain, you know. Um, so, you know, part of our challenge is to show that the work that we do is empowering to people's ability to sort of advocate and articulate, you know, not not disempowering. Yeah. Um, but that's just part of our own challenge here. Well, it's creating a culture also at a large scale, right? Mm -hmm. You're creating, and, and good cultures are built on um, safety, building safety mm -hmm. between between each other, build, yeah. uh, having vulnerability and purpose, right? Sharing that vulnerability <laughs> um, and, and knowing that those people are not bad people because they think differently than you. Um, and if you look at how you have to shift a culture, to feel comfortable. I mean, mm. there's just, you know, and there's a lot of aspects to this that just make it super challenging. And for me, it still comes back to like, I almost want to set the conversation where it's like, all right, if we're going to engage in a political conversation, let's recognize that we are going to have, we have to lay one definitions down. Yeah. That's like one that's mm. crazy. People don't even know the, the same words. Right? Mm. <laughs> and then you argue about a thing and you don't even have the same lexicon. Uh, that's two literally two different languages. You can't even get past fact. What is a fact? That's like a conversation. It shouldn't be a conversation what a fact is, but it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and then whatever that fact is, I've heard someone, <laughs> I've heard someone say, a fact. I get all the information I can, and then I I uh, make an opinion. I mean, you know, we. Are, 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 you, are you saying that? So so what what's your what's your take on like that way of approaching? approaching things you know sort of uh, get, gathering information and rendering your opinion are you saying that that's not the way to do it or? well i've heard well well then that would lead it to me that your opinion is a fact right oh, oh yeah. they're, they're offering that yeah. as a definition of the word a definition fact. of the word fact correct okay right right yeah, yeah exactly. right well, and so what this gets to then is the fact that you know facts are having facts and the interpretation of facts are different things right and so you know we might actually disagree on what the facts are 
And then it becomes a question of, you know, what are our sources? You know, how are we arriving at our information? And, you know, that can be a complicated enough, you know, conversation as it stands. But then there's, you know, the question of how are we interpreting facts, right? And all sorts of priors come into that. And so, you know, it's really, it's really you know, people, people act like facts are the issue. I think that that's kind of overblown on a certain level. I mean, you know, yes, there is, there is an issue with facts and arriving at credible information. It's made complicated by social media, so on and so forth. But I'll give you an example just because this has been on my mind because people are talking about 2,000 mules and Dinesh D'Souza and so forth. Uh, but I remember, you know, just Dinesh D'Souza's, uh, you know, his first blockbuster documentary, Obama's America, uh, where he sort of lays out this picture of Barack Obama. And, you know, I worked for Obama's campaign way back in the day. I became a Republican, some of the more conservative leanings. got a lot of criticisms of uh, Barack Obama's uh, policies and so forth. But D'Souza looked at the fact that, um, that you know, Barack Obama was the first president uh, with uh, sort of trillion-dollar uh, debts and trillion-dollar deficit. Uh, and, you know, he, he identified that as a fact in his documentary, and, and that was a fact. Like Obama, you know, he uh, he definitely, you know, presided over, you know, serious, you know, financial uh, shortfalls, right? Um, but then oh, D'Souza's interpretation of that fact was remarkable. If you do the math, and, you know, I think you could say Obama spent too much money and what have you. I think there are legitimate economic criticisms of the Obama administration. Who has yeah, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> Who hasn't? Isn't that the nature of becoming president? You just spend too much money? Pretty much. Pretty much. And you can say Obama was, was, was worse than most. But he came into office with a $400 billion tax, uh, you know, a tax shortfall because of the recession. If you look at the numbers, mandatory spending, I'm getting wonky here, but mandatory spending on things like Medicare and Social Security, each increased over the course of his four, four years or so by about $2 trillion or whatnot. And then, you know, he spent a trillion dollars on the stimulus package or, you know, 800 some odd billion dollars on the stimulus package. And, you know, that was to counter the recession. If Republicans had been in office, they would have cut taxes possibly by about that much, right? Bottom line being that any Democrat or Republican president would have had a trillion dollar deficit and would have, you know, would have added trillions of dollars to the national debt. And there might have been, you know, some real difference at the margins, but anybody was going to do that. But D'Souza took that fact and instead contextualized it through the prism of Barack Obama's father, who was a Kenyan socialist government uh, official, and the fact that, you know, Obama you know, had somebody who had sort of like left-wing associations and sympathies for, you know, for like social justice uh, causes on the left. And D'Souza's interpretation of the debt was Obama is deliberately driving us into debt so as to make America economically equal with the third world. Like that was Dinesh D'Souza's interpretation of those facts, right? Right. So like, you know, D'Souza is here, like we would agree on the facts, but Jesus, you know, like like, where is the interpretation like coming from, you know? But you know, this is why we got to understand sort of like where we're coming from. And and it can get complicated when you're talking about people and uh, authority and influence who have other sorts of, you know, structural kind of incentives for, you know, pushing a certain a certain line. I mean, if you're going to make millions of dollars, you know, with a TV show or a documentary or whatnot, that can make it a little bit difficult to back out yeah. of a certain, you know, certain narrative. Sure. Right. And so these things all have to be taken into consideration. But just to say that interpretation of facts is, is the key thing here, not just facts in and of themselves. Facts and the interpretation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's um, Daniel Kahneman's book, which is one of my favorites, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh-huh. Um, if you read that book, you at least my, my experience was that you start to not, you're so wary of your own judgment. Mm-hmm. There are so many cognitive biases right. that, that, that filter your thought process. Being emotional is like one thing. <laughs> Yeah. There's recency, frequency, uh, how it was that availability, availability, how yep. intense something happened. You know, yep. it's like all of these things, um, uh, the, the social aspect to think if it, yeah. it, it's something like 50 or 100 of them. Right. And many of those which were actually quite valuable to us in an evolutionary sense. Right. Yeah. So there, so and still are in a yeah, lot of ways. There, there's yeah. rationality behind uh, how our brains kind of filter the world. And interpret it. Yeah. Uh, but in, uh, you know, so a lot of people saw the uh, the documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, Tristan Harris, uh, I think he was the one who quoted uh, a, um, uh, a someone's someone's quote from decades ago that, that talked about uh, that we are that human beings have 
Paleolithic brains and medieval institutions and godlike technology, <laughs> right? And so we we can't evolve our brains fast enough to to deal with the environment that we're in now, right? And and of course now we are are dealing with things like deep fakes, right? And 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 where and technology that is vastly overtaken our ability to kind of keep it framed up in our heads about what it's doing to us, mm. right? So so it does seem like the uh the the arc of uh of danger in terms of human history is 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 amping up right and and that we absolutely need uh to figure out how to rein in this technology and and uh not necessarily put uh you know pandora's box uh you know close it back up but but really to uh adjust the incentives i think that uh these that social media companies other media companies have um, in terms of, you know, p people people often talk about deplatforming others. I have a pretty unpopular uh, view among my fellow liberals and progressives that Donald Trump should not have been kicked off of Twitter, mm. right? And because you know what happens there is that he that that he and other uh, demagogues, uh, in in my in my belief, right, they they go into more enclosed spaces where uh, the the people who support them are in a, a a bubble of reinforcement and those who kicked them off the platform no longer have any uh any influence it's actually reinforces echo chambers absolutely yeah. and so and so the, you know from in my mind the what we should be focusing on is well one of the main reasons that we're, we're faced with this problem is because the incentives that the incentive structure of uh social media in general yeah. is about chasing the the highest engagement and the highest engagement is always going to be anger mm. right and so we are so basically there is this built-in uh structure and, and people talk about uh the like button which kind of did the opposite but now we have other reactions we, we, we have the anger reaction literally in, in facebook right mm -hmm. and so um so that is a constant reinforcement of <laughs> what could go wrong right an amplification of, of the the angriest voices right and so and so we have to rethink that um, at I'm the same time that. that we're trying to, you know, rethink how we kind of relate to one another face to face. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the challenge is ahead. It's a crazy world. <laughs> yeah. It's a crazy world. So, yeah. so uh, I know we're, we're getting close to the end. I, I, I did want to, uh, mention, you know, I, I know that you've been very involved in, you know, uh, building your community in Santa Monica. Um, and, uh, you know, listening to, uh, the, the pod with, the city manager, like I, I get a sense that um, I, I was impressed with his uh, approach to things, his equanimity, right, in the face of of some of the trends that we've seen. I, I work with a lot of our, of our partners who uh, come to us, like uh, uh, corporations, other organizations that are being affected by uh, this new vitriol that that is invading formerly non political spaces, right? And uh, and so we have several initiatives that. That are really focused on that. One of them is is called Braver Politics. That um, you know we want to uh, help our political leaders uh, engage in better conversations, but it's also just regular public officials, right? The the folks who are running uh, departments, uh, you know, municipal departments and and school board members, right? Who are who are experiencing this vitriol like they've never experienced before. Um, but we all also have a a program called Braver Communities. That uh, you know, in Cincinnati, for example, we are taking every angle that we possibly can and throwing it at the wall, seeing what sticks, right? Seeing how many institutions that we can engage in a community, be they religious, institu religi religious institutions, uh, corporations, uh, nonprofits, uh, any, any sort of uh, organization that has a stake in that community. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the way that you're engaging with your community is it's kind of reminiscent of that, right? Like, like I, I, I see you talking to all of these different stakeholders, right? And, and trying to get their, uh, their take on how we can actually improve the dynamic. I think of, what Randy's trying to say, Evan, is are you interested in a job? <laughs> <laughs> you can always use the, uh, the battlements. That's Ray very Ray kind Ray. of you. That's very kind of you. I, and I appreciate that. I, I do believe that if we can make politics human, because I don't think most people think of politicians like humans. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right? Or even people at the city very often. Regular people. 
Mm. Right? right? And there's a lot of issues with like city bureaucracy and like how things get done and process and like there's tons of it. But like if we can make people human, they can be authentic. We can have these conversations. We could start to see that they're people too. Then I think the, the it'll create an ecosystem of trust. And I'd like to, I you know, I I believe that what you're doing does that. What Braver Angels does does um, does does that. <laughs> and um, and that's you know my intention. I think there's a lot of good people out there. Not every politician is is a great person, but there are, and I know a bunch that are good people, and they get. You know, I think they can bring, if they can bring um, their world to the level mm. of the regular citizen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We don't know what happens there. Yeah. They need to bring that to us mm. and not make it such a black box and, and, and be a human and authentic and show and talk about their kids. And that's, you know. Yeah. Um, make genuine connection. Genuine connection, building safety and vulnerability. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. more to talk about on that front. I mean, because, yeah, that is part of what our work aims at, too. Specifically, Brand Randy mentioned braver politics. And so, yeah, we're addressing um, uh, particularly, you know, local elected officials across the country in just that kind of a spirit. Yeah. So, yeah, man. Uh, I, I loved this. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for, for doing this and taking the time. Definitely. Yeah, 100%. Great. Yeah. Well, let's not let have this be the last conversation. I love it. Absolutely. I love it. Let's do, a, right. let's do a mid, how about a three-person high five in the middle? All does, right. Does, does, that, does that work? <laughs> okay, let's there we go. One, two, three. Two, three. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I think John got crowded out. Did you, put, you want to try it again? One more time. One, two, One, two three. three. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was go. better. That was better. <laughs> Second try. All right. Yeah, got, Fast got learning curve. There we go. All right, guys. All right, now. Thank you. Pleasure.